Welcome to the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. This is the place where high-achieving professionals come to gain confidence on how to successfully navigate their transition into and life during retirement. There's no such thing as a passive retirement plan. To have a successful financial future, your plan must be actively managed. Each week, we will bring you action plans and expert interviews that will help you gain insights, learn fresh perspectives, and finally experience peace of mind about your retirement. Here to help you achieve your dream retirement and live the life you deserve are your hosts, certified financial planners, Braden Stancil and Merce Tariq. All right, everyone. We are extremely excited about this episode of Secure Your Retirement. We are going to be talking basically all things real estate when it comes to how we might think about that in retirement as we're planning for retirement, all the different little steps that we might go through because right now that can be complicated and any time of life it can be complicated. But right now we want to think about it in the concept of in retirement. So Merce, can uh, you let us know a little bit about who we're going to be interviewing? Yeah, absolutely. So we are very excited to uh, introduce Renee Hillman. Personally, Renee, I've known her for quite some time. She's a realtor in this area. And I've had the fortune of working with her in a couple transitions throughout my life as far as, you know, out of college, buying my first house. And then after I got married a couple of years ago, buying my next house and the current house that I'm in. And, you know, I had a really good experience with Renee, all the different things that she thinks through. I mean, her experience tremendously just shows up when you're talking to her. And so we thought, you know, when we were thinking about different ideas for interviews and podcast ideas. We're talking about, well, you know, real estate in retirement, downsizing, stuff like that. And we're thinking about who we could possibly bring on. And I said, you know, I had the best experience with Renee and all the different things that she makes you think about when you're thinking about selling your house. And so we reached out to her and we're just very thankful that Renee is able to join us today here for this interview. So thanks for joining us, Renee. We'd like to start off by just getting to know you a little bit. So if you don't mind, just take us through, you know, how you got into the world of real estate. All right. I'm excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Gosh, to make it a short story, I actually started in this field when I was about 15 and no family influence or anything like that. My dad, you know, retired engineer. My mom was retired nurse. And I happened to fall into where my parents were building over in Cary. And I happened to help the onsite agent there. I'm just literally kind of collating real estate packages, writing thank you notes, those type of things. And she ended up being a great contact for me and really kind of parlayed into a lot of other things through college to the point that I decided in college during my summer breaks, you know, so exciting that I went and got my real estate license. And shortly after college, really January of 2001, I jumped in headfirst. And honestly, haven't looked back. And here I am 20 years later, you know, with a very robust business and enjoying it each day. So you get in this thing, you're so young and you kind of move through that whole thing. What do you love about what you do when it comes to helping people with real estate? Oh, there's so many things. I mean, you know, obviously making the connections. I'm a people person. I enjoy working with people. I love problem solving. And, you know, obviously I think with real estate, that's a unique skill to have. I mean, there's so many moving parts, especially when selling, buying, you know, whether upsizing, downsizing, I mean, you name it, you know, I tell people we have about a 160 point checklist. So it's a lot of moving pieces. So I enjoy the problem solving aspect of it. Obviously, you know, it's afforded me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise financially. And really, it's just the people. I mean, like I tell everyone, the process is very similar with each thing, but we've run across, you know, we meet 
really unique people on a daily basis. And I think that's what makes it different each time, but the same at the, you know, going through that process. Yeah, very good. Can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you're from, and kind of the things that you like doing when you're not going from house to house and you're not meeting with clients all the time? Because I know you're very busy. Yes. So I guess I'm the typical Carryite that was relocated here, right? But honestly, I was relocated here to North Carolina when I was about nine months old. So I might as well go ahead and claim North Carolina at this point. But I was born in upstate New York. My husband and I reside in Raleigh and have, gosh, I've lived in Raleigh since 2006, but lived in Cary since 1991 prior to that. So I kind of consider myself a native. Went to middle school, high school here at Apex, then off to school at NC State. You know, and then I have a daughter, which she's a ball full of energy. We have a great time with her. But, you know, outside of real estate, you know, I kind of look at real estate not only as my profession, but hobby too. But outside of that, when we do have some time, you know, you'll find us, you know, enjoying one of the many hiking trails that we have around here, you know, obviously dining out at some of our favorite restaurants in the area. We do enjoy going to Lake Gaston quite a bit. And gosh, I guess just all the other normal family things, right, that you do. Well, that's great. It's, uh, you know, this area is like uh, when you come to North Carolina and there may be people who listen to this, they're not North Carolina, but North Carolina right now has so many people moving in and from all over the country, actually. A lot of people from up north, obviously. So if you don't mind, Renee, we just want to talk to you a little bit today about, like we said in the beginning, kind of thinking about real estate, whatever it might be. But a lot of our clients are individuals that are close to, now we define close to within about 10 years of retirement, we're already in retirement. So, you know, they're, you know, 55 to 70, somewhere in that range is kind of like a client for us. And there's a variety of different things that they are looking for when it comes to real estate. They might be thinking about downsizing. They might be thinking about moving into a retirement type community. And that's kind of a common thing for us. So we kind of want to go through just kind of like an A to Z kind of a a process as much as we can cover today within the time that we've got. So the first thing is, and we get this all the time, I think anybody who's ever thinking about selling a house is what's the first thing you do? When you think about selling a house, you start just really, your brain just kind of goes into this thing of all the things I've got to do. Could you kind of help us think about what's the first thing? I honestly think the very first thing anyone should do when they're thinking about first thinking about selling a property is contact a local real estate broker. Honestly, we are a wealth of information and, you know, it gives you the ability to kind of start from ground one and you'd be surprised at how many things you may or may not need to do to get your home ready for the market. So I guess that's a little self-promotion there, right? But I really do feel like that is one of your best calls to make. Not only that, because if there is work that needs to be done on the house, you know, we have the contacts to make that happen. And so you're not kind of spinning your wheels and we can put a a really strong action plan in place, whether that's three months down the road, a year, six months. Yeah, I would fully agree with that. I mean, we see ourselves as experts in our field and we would see, you know, I would be very quick to hire a real estate person versus trying to do it myself just because I believe in the idea of an expert in the field. You're going to get all the knowledge that you may or may not have. And there's only so much research you can do. Experience brings a lot to the table. So I fully agree, Renee. A question though, when you're thinking about downsizing, when you're thinking about selling a house, a lot of things start to ripple through the mind as far as, you know, I've neglected the roof for 10 years. I've neglected the kitchen or our carpet's really dirty. What about painting? You know, the landscaping, should I redo that? all that stuff starts to go through the mind. And I know you in particular helped me a lot when I was selling my townhouse 
way back several years ago. And you helped me think through, you know, sometimes it's not worth putting all the money into certain things. And there's certain things that really just you get the best bang for your buck when you're about to list a house. What would you see in your experience? I know it's very, that's a very open-ended question, but what are some of the things that really are worth doing from the get-go? I think, again, you know, we really take a look at what's going on in the market at that point in time, right? I think it's always hard to forward predict what it's going to do. But, you know, I would say probably the most common things that we end up doing in a home that I really think are best bang for your buck is honestly paint. It is amazing what a fresh coat of paint and, you know, some white trim or, you know, obviously we were sometimes working with wood trim, but it's amazing what that fresh coat of paint will do. And it's honestly one of the least expensive items that we can do a lot on a home to freshen it. And, you know, obviously focusing a lot of times on kitchens and baths, cosmetics go a long way. And there are, you know, lower price point things that we can do to really, you know, kind of create a better return on investment. So we always look at things as, okay, if we do this, what is that ultimately going to do to the sales price? If we don't feel like it's going to help move the needle, we will obviously talk about that. Sometimes it comes down to just decreasing your time on market will be certain suggestions that we make. But you know, to answer your question, I really think paint and really probably light fixtures is probably the runner up, so to speak, on bang for your buck. Yeah, there's two thoughts I think about on that is that one of those is I kind of think, well, if I paint it, they're probably going to want to come in and paint it their own color. Or if I put in this particular countertop, they're going to think, I don't like that countertop. So to me, in my mind, sometimes I think, what if I just had it, I don't know, stay the way it is, which is out of date, and then I got to fix it up. Are you saying that basically most people, they give that a much bigger ticket item in their head as to what that's going to cost than if you just did it ahead of time? Yeah. I mean, what we end up seeing is, let's say those repairs on average, you know, that we potentially suggest cosmetically, let's just say on average across the board, it's about eight to $10,000 in, in market prep, right? To get your home ready for the market. Obviously, sometimes we walk into homes, we've got one coming up tomorrow that literally needed not a single thing. You know, obviously there's extremes here, but you know, the buyer's perception is always going to be that something costs more than it actually does. So sometimes as a seller, it behooves you to put some money into your property to really, you know, that eight to 10K maybe creates, you know, 20 to $25,000 difference in price. In my mind, that's pretty much a no brainer to create some pretty good ROI. If not, and we need to work in an as-is market, that's fine too. It's just that obviously our pricing and strategies are gonna be a little bit different for both. Good, yeah. I will share a personal little thing. When So when Renee came into my townhouse, and we were friends at this point, and so basically she walked in and within a couple of seconds, she pretty much said, yeah, this paint's gotta go. And you know, it made all the sense in the world. We picked the color and it just, it never really set with the house because of how much lighting we had coming into the house. We had a darker color. So she was like, yep, this has to go. And so we did that. We listened to that advice and the townhouse actually sold very quickly in a short couple of days. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing sometimes what the, the smallest little things will do. I mean, it, it really comes down to where's the house located? What's the condition of it? and, you know, pricing. And so, you know, our goal is as a buyer walks out of a house is that their checklist, instead of being 
15 things that they think the house needs, if we can get that down to three to five, it's a lot more reasonable in someone's mind and, you know, in a buyer's mind than it is to to walk in and have to fully, you know, renovate and, and gut a home. So there's two parts of this question. We usually think about, you know, what's the best time of year to put your house up? I think in my mind, I've always thought it should go up in like spring, you know, whenever the grass is turning and the flowers are blooming. But is there anything on that that you think about? I mean, obviously you're a realtor all year long. So, I mean, people might have situations that they got to sell all year long. Is there a thing where a person should say, I need to wait until this happens or does that matter? I don't think those cycles matter as much. I think so much of that was based around a traditional school calendar for so long that with year round and, you know, obviously different options out there for schools, it's kind of shifted some of that. You know, springtime, I think just because it it makes the houses look pretty, right? The grass is getting greener, the flowers are blooming, people are kind of getting out of hibernation over the winter. I think there's always that excitement. You know, obviously with that excitement, more homes are going on the market. We have more buyers But at the same token, we've had some of our best quarters in the fourth quarter, which is traditionally where most people would not think to put their home on the market because of the holidays. I mean, we can get multiple offers on a house at any point in time all year round. So I think we're a little bit atypical team where fourth quarter for us typically is the strongest. But, you know, when you look at your typical sales curve, typically that April 1st through mid-May, that six-week stretch is normally where the most real estate is sold all year long. But that's not to say that's necessarily the best time because I think the best time really comes down to what is the best time for the seller and what makes sense for their goals and what they're trying to accomplish. So that's, you know, another thing that we evaluate as we're, we're going through that process. Sure. And I know you and your team, you have a pretty broad reach in the, in the RTP area and even outside of that. So you see different markets in different areas. Can you speak a little bit to how important the area or how much of an impact the particular area has to its ability to sell and how quick it sells and the pricing, listing, stuff like that? I think, you know, what makes our team unique and not to play a pun on words, but we sell a lot of unique homes, right? So we can have that 12 acre farm in Siler City, and then we could have that urban condo in downtown Raleigh. You know, we we work with a lot of different property types. Obviously, a lot comes down to when we talk about location, it's knowing who we need to market the home to. So, you know, someone that's maybe buying in Chatham County isn't necessarily our same buyer that might be purchasing in Durham or Wake County, for instance. So, so I do think location always does play a part in, you know, resale and making adjustments. So let's say you have a home, for instance, that backs to a busy road. We know that that likely is going to take a percentage adjustment versus that same home that maybe is in the interior of a subdivision backing to a wooded, you know, buffer. I think each location, we're very fortunate in the triangle that regardless of whether you're purchasing in Chapel Hill, Cary, Raleigh, wherever it may be, or even, you know, obviously selling in those areas, you're always going to have a certain niche of buyer that's interested in that property. So when we started out the conversation, we'd have a lot of people And I mean, we have a lot of people that are moving into the area from, you know, another state. So they might have done research and found out about Raleigh and Cary and Chapel Hill and Durham, whatever it might be. What's the best way for a person like that? I mean, would you say they would come into town first and do that? Or would you say, go ahead and make the contact with a realtor, with someone like you, make a contact and then you come up with a game plan as to what they should do? Because obviously it's a vast area. And if you don't know 
what you're looking for, you could just drive around for a couple of weeks and still not even have a good idea. Yeah. And again, I think that's where, you know, linking up with a professional in the area is important. You know, like today, for instance, I was talking with someone that's relocating from Nashville, another that was relocating from Northern Virginia. And it is hard, right? I mean, you can do all the research that you want online, but it always helps to talk to a person and understand the areas. A lot of people don't understand just to drive from one side of Cary to the other takes about 50 minutes. And that blows people's minds that it's that large. So I think, you know, we always ask what we call lifestyle questions like, hey, what's important to you? Where are your jobs? How long are you willing to commute? Because that commute time can really drive a lot of that decision. Obviously, price point, what your purchasing power is, you know, if certain schools are important to you. I mean, there's a lot of different drivers that people use. We're able to really kind of ask some key questions right away and help kind of guide that buyer to the correct location. And then obviously, most of the time we hit it off well, you know, with the areas that we might suggest. Sometimes we do have to kind of pivot and react to the feedback. But yeah, I mean, I think a good overview tour is a lot of times what we'll do first to, you know, not even seeing homes at first, but literally, hey, here's kind of a lay of the land, which kind of town or city really kind of resonates with you after traveling through them. So to recap, what we've talked through so far is basically in steps, you decide to sell your house. Next step is you hire a realtor, an experienced realtor to help you think through that, which leads you to talk through all the different things that you may want to do to the house in order to get it ready for sale. So now, Renee, you know, once we do all that, how do you go about coming up with a listing price? This word always gets thrown around and realtors know it very well, but it's not really that common in normal terms is comps. Yes. You know, yes. The famous comps. <laughs> so can you talk through what are the different things that you're looking at when you're trying to figure out at what price point to list a house at and how you utilize comps? Yeah. Ironically, I just did a training on this last week for some other agents, but Pricing tends to be a strong suit for me. I'm very analytical. And obviously, some of pricing is analytical. Some of it is gut instinct, though, too, you know, which I think comes from experience and knowing the markets that you're selling in. But comps or comparable homes is what we typically try to go for. Ideally, we try to work within the subdivision first to see if we can find some like kind homes. And if not, you know, we'll extend out to other subdivisions that we know that are similar or stay in the same zip code. Obviously, when we get into our more unique properties, sometimes we are having to go large distances to find similar type homes. But that's kind of where we start. And then then it's making adjustments for condition. So back to that original question, when we were talking about condition, that's really how we come up with what I call an action item list. Like, hey, these are a list items that I think would improve your chances of selling, keeping your days on market shorter, and you getting the most money for your property, right? And then we break that down to say, okay, and then here are the B items We'd love to have these, but they're not really necessary per se. But that's kind of the short version of it. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to it, you know, fine tuning. But, you know, we're typically trying to come up with three to five homes that are comparable in size, subdivision, you know, if it's a custom build, that they're custom built homes versus production build. There's, you know, obviously a lot of variables that go into that, but those are probably the main main things we start with. And then we just kind of keep narrowing down and getting it as granular as possible. And I'm assuming there's a little bit of there in that topic too, of like, how fast do I need to move it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's always folks that'll be like, well, I don't have to sell it. 
And, you know, that's fine. But the problem is, you know, we still want to make sure that we've priced it correctly based on condition and location of the home. Because what we find time and time again, making sure that we price a home correctly without having to do price adjustments is important. Because historically, in the homes that we have to do price adjustments at, we end up lower than if we would have just priced it right in the first place. Yeah. I know that in the realtor world, there's like a buyer agent and a seller agent, and you have to sign a bunch of documents saying which one you are and if you're mm-hmm. going to have both. Is there an advantage, disadvantage of having one realtor be both, or should you never do that? Like, can you walk us through the difference between those two things? Yeah. So, you know, a seller's agent is there to promote the seller's best interest. Obviously, yes, like you said, we have a ton of paperwork. Luckily, we can do it all electronically for most of our clients. So it's not not that arduous, but there is a chance because like my team and, and really every other firm in the area, we represent both buyers and sellers. So when we're working with a buyer, we're obviously working under the exact opposite of seller's agency, a buyer's agency agreement. There is a chance though, of course, that we have that perfect home that, you know, is a perfect, you know, fit for one of our clients. And, you know, in that situation, we fall into what we call dual agency. You know, I'm sure there are lots of different stories about the all types of agency. We have luckily not run into any, you know, hardships with dual agency. The biggest thing is because we have personal information on both parties in a transaction is that we really have to go into a mediator role versus a negotiator role. I think for most sellers, they don't mind the dual agency. You know, everyone's very transparent about it, but I don't want to withhold a property from a potential buyer because it might be the perfect fit. But at the same token, everyone is well aware that we do have to work in that mediating capacity versus a true negotiating capacity. Although most sellers honestly don't mind because they just want the best terms for their home and it's sold the quickest you know, way possible. So I'm sure people would advocate on either side of that, but I would like to believe that we're able to kind of walk more of that neutral, kind of tell people it's like walking a tightrope. We just have to be you know, careful about, we can't say one thing to one party and not say the same thing to another party, that type of thing. Sure. I hope that you are enjoying the show. By the way, if you are in or nearing retirement and are someone who wants to gain clarity on what questions you should be asking, learn what the biggest retirement myths are, and identify what you could be doing to achieve peace of mind for your retirement, get started today by requesting your complimentary video course, Four Steps to Secure Your Retirement. To access the course, simply visit pomwealth.net forward slash podcast. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in applying these principles to your life. So head over to pomwealth.net forward slash podcast and check us out. So while we're on that topic of buyers versus seller agents and stuff like that, so a question that comes up or sometimes people don't know or realize is, you know, how does a realtor get paid? You know, you can go to a CPA, sometimes you pay them an hourly rate, or you can go to a lawyer and put them on retainer. So how does it work in the world of real estate when you hire an agent on the buy side or on the sell side in a high level? I know there's nuances with almost everything as far as how fees go and stuff, but can you give us just an idea of what someone can expect when they're engaging with a real estate agent? Yeah. So I think the simple answer to that, obviously on the buy side, it's essentially you're indirectly paying the buyer's agent, right? The buyer's agent commission is actually paid by the seller. So in the state of North Carolina, the seller, when we have a listing agreement, there is a stated, you know, commission amount and then what the payout is to the buyer's agent. So 
the commissions typically fall on the seller to pay, you know, at closing. And that obviously can vary depending on, you know, terms and conditions that, you know, you're working with that seller on. But from the buyer agency side, you know, it is essentially a free service to a buyer. But trying to think, does that answer that question? That's great. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So when you go through this whole process in the last couple of years, they've come up with some, you know, new rules and that kind of stuff. But could you just explain like, so we are real clear about what due diligence is? Oh, yes. That is probably the number one question we get. I think we have an entire blog post and video blog about it. North Carolina is one of, I think there's only three states in the United States that is what is called a due diligence contract. So basically, it's buyer beware. The buyer is actually paying a fee to the seller to say, hey, seller, thank you for taking your home off the market while I do my property investigation, whether that is a home inspection, radon, termite inspection, structural engineer, appraisal, survey, whatever the buyer needs to do to feel 100% comfortable with purchasing the house. But for that fee, the catch here is, for that fee, you're giving the, the buyer a unilateral right to back out for any reason whatsoever. So that buyer could roll out of bed a few days after going under contract and go, hmm, you know what? I really would rather have a purple house. I don't want to buy this white house anymore. And that is a perfectly legitimate reason to get out of the contract. Obviously, in competitive markets, that due diligence fee ramps up very quickly. So it's kind of pay to play, so to speak. So, you know, sometimes those due diligence amounts get great enough that it really wouldn't make sense for a buyer to walk away. And obviously, the buyer's also investing, you know, a couple of thousand dollars, right, in different inspections. You know, all of those inspections, of course, cost money. That's really, I think, due diligence in a nutshell. It's just really buyer beware. Buyer gives this money to the seller and has the unilateral right to back out for any reason whatsoever up until that due diligence date without further penalty. I was having a conversation with a builder, a friend of mine, and he was talking about how fast things go up for sale and get under contract. We're just saying how hot everything seems to be right now. And he said uh, one of the things that he's seeing is that people are putting up like non-refundable deposits. Is that kind of along the due diligence scenario? Yeah, so that's what, it's called a due diligence deposit. So there's, you know, earnest money deposit and then a due, actually technically it's called a due diligence fee. So that's probably what your builder or friend was talking about is a due diligence fee. That is that non-refundable piece that is written. It literally says Mr. and Mrs. Smith on the check. Like it is written directly to the seller and the seller actually, you know, deposits that. It is credited back to, you know, the buyer at closing though. Okay. Okay. That's kind of the, I guess, non-refundable piece, so to speak. So along the lines with due diligence, and you just mentioned earnest money, what is escrow and how does that tie into everything? That's a term that gets thrown around by not just real estate, but also with lawyers. And they say, well, it's an escrow, you know, and then everyone's supposed to understand that. But can you break that down? you know, and maybe compared to what due diligence is? You know, I think escrow can be used a few different ways. The earnest money part of the transaction, which is, you know, again, that can vary depending on the the situation and price point. That earnest money is kept in a trust account or, you know, you will hear some people call that an escrow account. So it's, you know, or trust account, you know, it's protected and governed by different rules. When a house is in escrow, I don't find that that terminology is used as much in North Carolina, but, you know, in other states, I've, I've heard that term quite a bit. And my understanding is that when a home is in escrow, basically that's when it's under contract, you know, when the 
attorney is doing all of their steps. We're doing the, you know, like I mentioned before, the 160 steps that we have to get from, you know, under contract to closing. That's when all of those things are happening, you know, is during that time that the home is in escrow or, you know, under contract or contingent. I mean, you know, again, there's a lot of words that are used kind of interchangeably in real estate. So then when we look at all of those different things, if you had to break down kind of what of our big things that we have to consider when it comes to closing cost, because that's also one of those things, like if you don't know about it, you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize all these things were in the deal. Yeah, and I think the good thing is, I know what we do for all of our clients is actually run a projected net sheet. So they really do understand kind of where the fees fall you know, even some of our clients ask us to kind of do a projected, you know, repair budget. There's a lot of different nuances with that, you know, depending on how negotiations go, right? When we do go under contract, because there is a repair, you know, I guess, part to that process too. So it so varies. I mean, like I said, some homes we're selling as is, and then other homes, you know, obviously we're, we're having to negotiate for, you know, God forbid, like a structural, you know, issue or something along those lines where we have some bigger ticket items. But I think that's where those net sheets help a lot so that the seller can really understand, okay, hey, here's what my bottom line looks like when all is said and done. Obviously, they're going to have other, you know, alternative expenses with moving and those type of things. But again, we have some great movers that are able to kind of give us a ballpark idea of, especially, you know, when we go back to that whole downsizing move, right? You know, typically people are moving from a larger home to a smaller home. What do we do with the extra furniture? What do we do with this? You know, we've got contacts for all of that. So, you know, the idea is to help kind of keep that process as smooth as possible for folks. And I probably got away from the original question, but that's kind of how we operate with that. No, that's great. So, you know, in our world of financial planning and investments and stuff, when someone's looking to hire a financial advisor, they're typically not just talking to us, they're also talking to other financial advisors. So what would you say when it comes to hiring a realtor or trying to hire one, you know, maybe some key questions to ask or the way to go about finding the right one for you? How would you go through that process? Well, I think, you know, everyone has a little bit different thought process how they go through this, right? You have some folks that like to interview multiple people. You have other folks that, hey, you know, my friend referred me and I'm ready to to sign the listing paperwork today, right? Yeah. So you have, you know, definitely have a gamut. But I think most importantly, I think especially in any type of market, obviously someone's experience, really kind of understanding their experience, their market expertise, asking questions specifically to that, how many homes someone has, you know, closed in that area or, you know, general area. I see. We said the experience piece. I think too, just about how their process works, because the great thing about real estate is, is every agent can run their, you know, business differently. And so really understanding, you know, who is handling this process from start to finish, I think is also another important question. I mean, those are probably the top three things, you know, experience within that location and then, you know, really having a good understanding of the process. Obviously, you've got to work with someone you trust too. So making sure you're asking the right questions. Like I tell everyone, I don't have to be your best friend through the process, but I do want to be a trusted partner in that process. Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, someone that you're comfortable with is the biggest selling point for us. It's always, you know, find someone you're comfortable with because you're talking about some of the most important things in your life. There's this skit that my wife and I, John Mulaney, he's a comedian and we, we love him and the way that he approaches things. And he does this one thing about a realtor that just wasn't listening to them. 
and he talks through, you know, they're a newly married couple. They're looking for their first house and the realtor is just taking them to different places. And then he, she keeps going and they've made it clear that they do not want to have kids. And so she keeps going into different rooms and she's like, oh, well, this would be perfect for a nursery. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's just one of those things about, you know, the realtor that listens and you communicate well with, I think is massive when it comes to hiring one. You hit a good point on that. I think communication in any of our businesses is always key, right? And in understanding the mechanisms that people are comfortable communicating in, you know, obviously that's different for each generation. Sometimes it's that, you know, what I now consider, I feel like an old school phone call, you know, God forbid anyone pick up their phones anymore, but phone call to text messaging to emailing. I mean, I think, you know, obviously our job is to make the client, you know, as comfortable as possible, because like you said, it is, it is most of the time people's largest investment and it deserves to be handled as such. So one of the big things that we get people asking about or talking about, they're not really asking us about it. They're just thinking about it. Is it in the retirement process? They say, I live in this house and it's, you know, high maintenance, it's big, it's valued at a certain amount of money. And what we're, our goal is, is that we're going to live there until we get to some age and then we're going to downsize. And my question to you is, especially in this area, when it comes to downsizing, what's your thoughts on that as to what that really means and what we might want to think about? Well, I think, you know, downsizing means something different for everyone, right? Are you downsizing from a 5,400 square foot house or are you downsizing from 2,600 square feet? And I think it's, you know, really understanding what the goals are. Is the goal just to go into, you know, an active adult community? I know you mentioned that earlier. We have so many great options around here. I mean, we used to literally have one active adult community. Now we have, I think we're up to like nine or 10 at this point in our area. Empty nesters happens to be something that we work with quite a bit. And, you know, of course, empty nesters to retirement and, and all those variations in between. You know, I think it's also being mentally prepared and being okay to downsize. I think I sometimes think that the downsizing move can be one of the more difficult ones because you do have to, you know, kind of adjust your mentality on space and, you know, what you really need moving into that next phase and, and whether sometimes it's a unilateral move. It's really just going to a newer home, maybe smaller square footage. You know, hopefully the maintenance for the next 10 to 12 years is very minimal. You know, and I say unilateral move in the fact of like price point, right? Sometimes it ends up being very similar to their current price point, but it's just the living spaces or whatever is, you know, organized a little bit differently from what it is currently. So that one's always a tough move, but, you know, we work through it. We figure out, you know, again, what the the client's needs and wants are. And I think that really goes back to just asking the right questions and really understanding, you know, what this person needs in their next home. Yeah. You know, we said it before we actually started having this conversation. We could sit here all afternoon, probably talking about everything we need to do when it comes to buying or selling a house. And and there's just so many different moving parts. And so we appreciate so much you being able to break down some of these things for us. If somebody's listening and they're thinking about, you know, either side, buying a house, selling a house, doing both, how can they get in touch with you? What's what's the best way? So I think for me, really my direct cell phone number, it is plastered all over the place, but that is 919-868-4383. Obviously, you know, our website is is also have a has a contact us now, but that's www.hregcells.com. And then my direct email is Renee, R-E-N-E-E at hregcells.com. We try to keep it simple. (laughs) We'll have all that in the show notes. So we'll have all of your information in there. 
And so if a person wants to contact you, I mean, and, and they just got some questions, they maybe are just in that exploratory, just investigating, that's okay to have a conversation with you. You're fine to do that. Yes. And I mean, there's no obligation there, obviously. You know, it's it's building a relationship, building that trust. That's what's most important to us first. For instance, you know, I've been working with one couple since October of last year. We're just now getting their home on the market now. You know, sometimes that process is very quick. You know, I met someone today that will put their house on the market probably in the next week or two. But sometimes that is, you know, a year out, you know, for planning purposes. So we're happy to catch people at all points in the process. I definitely think in that downsizing move for planning purposes, contacting earlier rather than later is always important because then we can really do an assessment on what actually needs to be done versus, you know, just spending money on things that it's really not going to impact the price point. Yeah, I will say from my personal experience working with Renee and your team, I know Renee and the team, they have a very specific methodology when it comes to not just figuring out what to do with the house, but then when it comes time to list, they have a whole marketing plan around that. And that was something that I hadn't really heard about. It's not, you can't really sell a house with just flyers in the front yard anymore is what it seems like. So they have a whole process there that worked really well for me. Yeah, uh, Renee, thank you so much for your time today. We very much appreciate it so much. Yeah, no, enjoyed it. This was a lot of fun and and hope to be back again. All right. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate it and hope you have a good, uh, a good rest of the summer. You too. Thank you. All right, everyone. That wraps up today's episode of the Secure Your Retirement podcast. If you found value in today's episode, we would love nothing more than for you to head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a review. Be sure to take a screenshot of the review before you submit it and we'll send you a special gift. Our book, Get Off the Retirement Roller Coaster. Just email morgan at pomwealth.net with a screenshot of the review to get your gift. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified of new episodes as they're released every week. And finally, please share our podcast with your favorite social network so more of your friends and family can benefit from this information. Always remember, you've worked hard to get where you are, and now you deserve to have a retirement that works hard for you.